0: This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio I'm Catherine Cruz we've been hearing quite a bit about herd immunity when it comes to COVID-19 but here in Hawaii we may have a long way to go to get there HBR's Ashley Mizuo tells us more about an antibody test that we only just started using this month Ashley hi
1: thanks so much for having me
0: so yeah tell us about this antibody test
1: right so antibody tests are different than the normal swab tests that we're we've been talking about for the past couple of months Basically, antibody tests, the more reliable ones are through IV blood draw, and they tell you whether or not your body has created antibodies after you've been infected. So it tells you not necessarily that you're infected right now, but that you were infected in the past or right now. And then usually if you test positive for antibodies, they will also do the swab test on you to make sure that you're not currently ill. There are varying levels of reliability on the test, but the ones that are considered most reliable do have emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration.
0: And so these tests have been administered by, was it Hoy Pacific Health?
1: Right. So there's a couple of people going around and using them. The first people who did use them was Premier Medical Group, which is led by Dr. Scott Miskovich. which most people might recognize his name because he's been very vocal about doing robust testing on the Big Island. They were the first ones who really got it going, and they officially started on May 6th. The Department of Health has had some mixed um, opinions on it. They pretty much use this one blanket statement, which is that antibody testing is still under investigation. Um, so the results of antibody testing shouldn't be used for return to work decisions or decisions about using personal protective equipment or about social distancing. And one of the family care physicians with Premier Medical Group that I talked to about it um, said that these blanket statements from the department, they don't differentiate between reliable tests and unreliable ones and kind of undermine what Premier Medical is trying to do, which is to get more information about those who've been infected with COVID-19. At Premier Medical, they use one of the more reliable tests, which um, has the EUA, um, the emergency use authorization. And so for those who test positive for the antibodies, Premier Medical Group will also run a swab test to make sure they're currently not ill or they're currently ill. And then the clinical labs run those tests and then report the, test, the antibody test results to the Department of Health electronically. But only those who take the regular COVID-19 swab test and turn out positive get included in the daily count. So if you had antibodies but aren't currently ill, your swab test comes back negative. That doesn't get included in the daily count. But then last week, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green really highlighted Hawaii Pacific Health antibody testing on its healthcare employees, which is about they have about seven thousand employees, and out of the seven thousand, four thousand volunteered to be tested.
0: So, what do those results tell us?
1: Yeah, so about three thousand three hundred have been processed, and only point zero five percent came back positive for antibodies. And the thought there um, that Hawaii Pacific Health had was that because they're in the healthcare sector, their people are at really high risk of, you know, contracting COVID-19 because they're around it so much. And they're also just general members of the community. So whatever exposure they had would be reflective of the community at large or even higher because they have more chances to be um, infected or exposed to someone with COVID-19. So I spoke with Dr. Melinda Ashton who is one of the executive vice presidents at Hawaii Pacific Health, about her thoughts on the antibody results, and here's what she had to say. I've never been in that camp that thought there was a lot more virus out there that we just weren't finding, and the antibody results being this low tells us that that's probably true, because all of our employees are also members of our community, and so I think we've got a good snapshot of what this community has experienced, which is a very low level of circulating virus.
0: Right, and I think that's being reflected in the numbers right we've had zero cases uh, a couple of times just in the recent weeks
1: right and for her this was obviously good news and also a little disappointing because obviously dr ashton was really happy that um her employees in her hospitals aren't being infected as you know there is a very critical shortage of healthcare workers and there's only a limited supply of them um, so it's important that they're not you know contracting covid-19 and being unable to work But what these low levels of antibodies does mean that people are still very, very vulnerable to contracting the virus because there's no um, herd immunity, um, which is basically when um, a bunch of people get infected, right? And when you get infected, theoretically, the antibodies are supposed to protect you um, from getting infected again. Um, Although with COVID-19, it's not completely certain whether or not um, those antibodies will protect you and for how long, but um, there is a a general acceptance that probably if you had COVID-19 and had those antibodies, um, that you probably um, wouldn't get it again, or there's a much lower chance of you getting it again. Um, But I was curious about what um, these low percentage numbers at uh, Hawaii Pacific Health meant, so I asked Tim Brown, which is who is an infectious disease expert at East-West Center, um, and here's what he says is one of the issues with using the antibody test in Hawaii.
2: The level of exposure in the population is still comparatively low, which means what, what you pointed out with Hawaii Public Health, they found a very low positive rate. In some ways, that's good news, but it's bad news if you were hoping that the immunity was going to kick in and protect your people.
1: And, you know, Brown says that Herd immunity alone um, as a solution to COVID 19 is just not really realistic because of how just big the United States is and the death toll would be really high or probably unacceptably high. For example, New York, which is one of the hardest hit places right now, is only people are only about 20% of them are testing positive for antibodies and that's nowhere near. um, the 70% that's needed for herd immunity. And again, we still don't actually really know how long and if antibodies actually do protect people from COVID-19. Uh, Tim Brown says that it's probably more likely that we'll be waiting for a vaccine instead. And in the meantime, probably just getting better at treating the disease as opposed to relying on herd immunity.
0: Right, so in other words, we need to really keep our distance even though a lot of these restrictions are being relaxed.
1: Right, and like even though the numbers are really low in Hawaii, Tim Brown says that really we shouldn't be letting our guard down. In some cases where the disease is less infectious, it's enough to just have a very, very low population of people infected. So if you could get that number down very low for some less infectious diseases, that would be okay. But for COVID-19, it's just so contagious and easily transmissible that if, you know, just one person coughs, is in fact a bunch of different people. Right. So we really
0: just have to be on guard. Right. Okay. All right. Well, Ashley, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. HPR's uh, Ashley Mizuo is giving us the latest about uh, antibody testing here in Hawaii. And it's now time to take a look around the globe. Tensions rise between Donald Trump and China, and scientists observe the lowest carbon emissions seen since the
3: 1940s. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on the 19th of May. I'm Valerie Sanderson. A bitter row erupts between China and President Trump. Carbon emissions fall to levels not seen since the 1940s, and why the music of Chopin won't be heard outdoors this summer. There's anger in Beijing after President Trump called the World Health Organization a puppet of China. In a letter, he threatened to withdraw U.S. membership of the UN agency unless it committed itself to what he called substantive improvements. Mr. Trump claims the WHO didn't hold China to account when the coronavirus outbreak started there, an accusation the organization denies. Here's Beijing's Foreign Ministry spokesman, Zhao Lijian.
4: The letter is full of speculation, trying to mislead the public by feeding vague information in order to discredit China. The United States wants to shift the blame for its own incompetent response to the pandemic. This is futile.
3: Member states of the World Health Organization have agreed to an independent evaluation of the global response to the crisis. Meanwhile, an initiative is underway in some provinces in China to offer farmers cash to stop breeding wild animals for sale after they were linked with COVID-19 as well as other diseases. The authorities are attempting to buy snakes, bamboo rats, peacocks, camels and civet cats. Our Asia-Pacific editor, Celia Hatton, says it won't be easy. One big loophole, critics say, is that farmers
0: who are breeding exotic animals to be used for traditional medicine,
3: they'll be allowed to continue. And so it's really unclear how many farmers will agree to have their stocks bought up. A study carried out in England has estimated that global carbon emissions fell by more than a sixth at the height of the coronavirus lockdown. With more, here's Matt McGrath.
5: This report clearly shows that drastic lockdown measures taken by governments in the face of COVID-19 have cut carbon on a scale not seen since the Second World War. At the peak of restrictions in April, the world was pumping out 17 million tonnes less CO2 per day compared with daily levels in 2019. The key to this fall has been cars. Surface transport emissions have declined by 43%, the same amount as the drop from industry and power generation combined. Scientists are worried that emissions from cars will once again surge, as people avoid public transport due to fears of contracting the virus.
3: Two scientific advisors to the British government say there are signs that children may not spread coronavirus as much as adults. One says, unlike other respiratory viruses, children don't play much of a role in transmitting it and that immunity may not last long. Scientists say there's evidence that some COVID-19 patients are at a higher risk of developing psychiatric problems after they leave hospital. Their findings have been submitted to the medical journal The Lancet. Here's our health reporter, Philippa Roxby. Early research from patients in China suggests more than 60% suffered from confusion or agitation. A UK study, not yet published, found confusion was a symptom in 20% of cases. Although delirium is not unusual in seriously ill patients, staying a long time in intensive care and being ventilated are known to increase the risk. And the longer the separation from relatives, the worse the confusion can become, particularly among older patients. Qantas is planning to bring back 50% of domestic flights in July without passengers having to social distance. Its chief executive, Alan Joyce says that to do so would mean no more than 22 people could sit on a 180-seat plane. Instead, there'll be other measures.
2: We will be limiting movement in
5: flight. Masks will not be mandatory from a safety point of view, but they will be recommended to be worn in the interests of everybody.
3: Clerics in Pakistan say regular prayers at mosques will resume across the country. They insist no one can be sure when COVID-19 will disappear and Muslims can't forgo their religious customs out of fear. And finally... music of the Polish composer, Frederick Chopin, which was due to be performed at a park in Warsaw, but will now happen for the first time since 1959 because of the pandemic. Usually hundreds of people gather in the Royal Wajenski Park to hear the musicians' nocturnes, concertos, and other works. Instead, people can go online to watch performances, and Jay Matuszak organizes the annual event.
4: The concerts we
2: recorded were practically without an audience. It was strange. It was odd to us and to the pianists. There was no applause at the end. No one can imagine that after 60 years. There won't be Chopin's music in Warsaw in May.
3: Stay safe, that's it. This is the Coronavirus Global Update.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org.
4: Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what does college look like in the fall? We ask three university presidents about their protocols. They'll be offered in person and simultaneously in a remote learning environment. Bathrooms are a real issue. And about the financial challenges. We have some scenarios with losses in the hundreds of millions. Not much pomp and a whole lot of circumstance. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
6: Starting this evening at seven following Counterspin.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities ReStore, a home improvement store and donation center, announcing its reopening, hours 930 to 430, Monday to Saturday, honoluluhabitat.org.
0: In Barcelona, tourism officials are to begin using technology to manage people returning to the beaches and to get them to keep their distance. These unusual times are spurring innovative ideas. Uh, that brings us to why we're introducing you to Toby Morris. He's a Windward Oahu resident who felt so frustrated seeing tourists trespass on his family property for years just to get to a nearby waterfall. But rather just than just complain about it, he developed an app to try and manage the problem. His company is called GeoKeeping, and he's talking about his solution to anyone who will listen some think that there could be applications in this time of covid19 that could help state and county governments with scoff laws just this week the state arrested a california tourist who didn't abide by a 14-day quarantine he was nabbed in honolulu just before boarding a flight on maui two women are in trouble for violating quarantine a colorado resident still on the lam while the other has already been arrested here's toby morris explaining his idea tied to geofencing it's an approach using a virtual perimeter a virtual fence He thinks with some tweaks, it could be used to help monitor people under a 14-day quarantine.
2: The app is basically a geofence, which is a a virtual boundary that's put around each one of uh, Hawaii's assets. And the people that have downloaded the app, which would be mandatory that the state have them do this, would tell them when they are getting into a geofence area and then let them know, like if it's Hanama Bay, that they would have to pay to enter this uh, special place. I believe the, the Hawaiian word for all these places is, or term is vahipana and unfortunately because of geopinning and social media, all of those places are now, you know, on the map and easy to find for our visitors.
0: And what were the pros and cons behind this?
2: The major cons are that um, Hawaii doesn't want to lose, you know, the, the spirit of aloha and, and start charging people um, as they do in many other places in the world for um, each of the locations that are desirable to visitors, and I understand that. The um, other issue is is the privacy issue that has been um, more of a concern in Europe than it has been in the United States, but because the app is anonymous it doesn't tell you, you know, who they are or where they live or anything like that, then it it wasn't um, as much of a concern. But I think that there's just a, a general roadblock, I felt, from coming from the government that, you know, we're not ready for this. This is technology that is too out there, and the the way we're doing it has worked so far, so if it's not broken, don't fix it. The pros are that they would collect an incredible amount of data that could be used to project what their cost for infrastructure would be to areas that you know could use new bathrooms and stuff like that, because now they know that there's a lot of tourists going there. Also, the data could be used for marketing, because now they know what, what visitors are, where they're going and what they really want, and so that is a, is, is a big basket of benefits to the state. As far as the benefits for the visitor, they have an enhanced ex- experience because they are getting you know, the, the same cultural site or a beautiful place without so many people. And that leads into the next area, which is it would definitely need to limit the amount of people because our resources are getting um, stressed out by having so many people at one place at one time. And the segue to the COVID thing is that now, it's not just an impact on the residents that can't find parking or have too much traffic to get to the store. it's It's not just an impact on their way of life, but it's actually a health concern that there are too many people too close together in a certain place. So um, I think there's a lot, or there there's a few apps, and big companies are are providing um, apps that trace people who may be positive and who their contacts were. But my app is basically a perimeter, and it could be used by visitors, or by the state, I should say, to say, okay, visitors, you guys can come here. You can enjoy everything you you want in this perimeter area, say, Waikiki or Colina or Turtle Bay. But we're asking you not to leave. Like, you have to stay here to protect the rest of our community from, um, you know, the COVID virus. So, in that way, my app would be effective because um, of the geofence that would be around, say, Waikiki and these people that would be pinged if they started to go outside of the area. That say, now you're going outside of your, you know, designated resort area, and you have to go back. Otherwise, you're going to get fined.
0: We have seen in other countries though, where they're using apps for different things, like making reservations for a spot on the beach.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, because we're our resources are not unlimited. We're actually in a new era of of scarcity of resources. So beautiful places in the world are, are um, at a premium, and it's not like the good old days when uh, you know people just came to Waikiki and sipped a mai tai by the pool and then got a suntan and went home um, they want to get out there and explore the quote-unquote real hawaii which puts an incredible stress on the dlnr and our um, critical infrastructure like the search and rescue teams and the residents that are also putting um, their own stress on the um, ecosystems so you know at the end of the day, there's just too many people in one place at one time.
0: What we're seeing with this pandemic is we need to rethink what we're doing and how we can manage going forward.
2: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm not sure if you can call it management at all, because basically as many people as, as could possibly fit on the beach could go to any particular beach at any time. If it was managed properly, and like you say, they did have to, you know, order a spot on the beach, it would have been probably better off for, for everybody, for the, the visitors, you know, for, for their experience, for the residents, for the ecosystem, and for the, uh, the government that has to provide the bathrooms and everything for the visitors in the first place. But now, with COVID here, it's a whole new ball game, and it, it, it rapidly is apparent that we're, we have to rethink how we do things now.
0: And I'm not sure what type of app that the state uses and how different it is f- from what you know you're proposing
2: i'm um I'm not sure what they are either. I, i've I've heard that they're using uh, the uh, secondary uh, data market, but um I don't really know, so you would have to ask them
0: right. I'm just trying to figure out how. Uh, how else your app might be useful? You know, we have seen those apps where it lets people know when you're less than six feet away from a person.
2: Yeah, and once again, my my app would not be anything like that. My app would basically just be sign in and allow us to track your your location through your GPS and your phone. This is not something that you get to choose if you if you're going to do. It. This would be mandatory to come. Into the state, you have to do this, and then, you know, when you uh, leave an area that is where you're not supposed to be, we're going to know about it. And if you turn off your phone, then there's going to be a fine. Enforcement is unfa- unfortunately a big part of this, but I think this is, you know, kind of uh, this is how the world is today, and we really need to manage our resources carefully for the safety of our citizens. And um, I think Hawaii has an opportunity here also to be known as the most sustainable place on earth that's taking care of the ecosystem that we have to offer the world for the benefit of future generations i mean i think that's a great marketing strategy that we should have done years ago because if you've been to monolue falls lately or to the pillbox trail or tried to go to white bay you know that it's just it's crazy right there's there's too many people so um yeah i see it as an opportunity.
0: What do you say to critics who might wonder, well, if a person just leaves his phone in his hotel room, then it shows that he's at the resort, but then he sneaks out and goes somewhere else?
2: That's a great question. I think a lot, of, a lot of the fine points of this have to be, you know, we have to drill down into. But just off the top of my head, they probably would have to take their phone with them and have to be able to show the enforcement agency guys that, that they have you know, this is who they, that they have the app, and it's loaded, and that's why they would know that they would get pinged if they um, left the perimeter area.
0: Anything else you want to add just about, you know, the fact that everybody's being asked to innovate, right, going forward and and here you have this idea to do that and help manage people coming and going?
2: Well, I know how important the tourism industry is to Hawaii and I hope that they take advantage of technology to, to get it up and running as soon as possible. And I also hope that in the meantime, the visitor will have an enhanced experience while they're here. It may be that it's more expensive and less people can come, but I think that that was something that was apparent for um, many years before the COVID virus came around, but the COVID virus has really kicked this into high gear, and I think we, we're we going to see big changes in, in all aspects of our life, and um, tourism is going to be one of them. You know, in America, our, we take our, our civil rights and liberties very seriously compared to some of the countries in Asia that are probably more apt to, to following, along, following along for the good of, um, of everyone. And so um, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. And we're just going to have to see how our policymakers determine you know, the best practices for most people.
0: That was a conversation we had with Toby Morris of GeoKeeping about an app he developed to try and help manage our natural resources and people's whereabouts by tracking them and alerting authorities if they are in areas that are (music) kapu. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story online today that looks at our fishing industry. It's our reality check for today. Editor Chad Blair here to tell us about a story that gives us a snapshot of yet another industry that is ailing during these COVID times. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So you've got a story by Nick, Nick Ruby.
4: Yeah, Nick Ruby in our D.C. bureau, but he's also looked at um, the fishing industry because, of course, it has ties to Washington. You know, if you've gone into tomorrow's lately or, or elsewhere to buy pokey or ahi or swordfish, you've noticed that the prices are down. And, and, and of course, that is becoming from lack of demand, right? The tourism industry has dropped off tremendously because of the 14-day quarantine. And so the case you have here and what nick writes about is that hawaii's long line fleet which makes up about oh about 90 percent of all commercial fishing in the state is it's pretty much cheaper to stay tied up in port rather than to take the boat out you know and pay wages and pay for fuel and things like that and it really is a crisis in the last two months Alone, there has been about a ten million dollar loss in revenue for this industry. They're looking at probably fifty million dollars in losses uh, by the end of the year.
0: Well, you know, I've been doing my part. I had fish and rice this morning.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm going to head to tomorrow's after this and pick up a poke bowl. But uh, and that's good. And we 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 should contribute. We should, you know, uh, it's it's a very important industry. I didn't realize this that uh, until I read Nick's article today that uh, the fishing industry is the largest a food processing uh, industry in the state, and that's by far nearly 10,000 jobs uh, annually, about $1 billion in sales. But the challenge right now is there has been little federal or state help, even though Congress and the president have signed several relief packages so far. There's another one that the House is pushing over to the Senate now. We'll see where that goes. But the money that has come through from the fishing industry has only worked out to about $300 million, and that has to be shared by all the states that are engaged in fishing. Of that money I just mentioned, only about $4.3 million has gone to Hawaii. States like Alaska and Washington and California, also as thriving fishing industries, have seen more. Of course, they're larger than we are, uh, but it there just has not been the federal relief for this particular industry that that other businesses uh, are taking advantage of.
0: Well, I know when I drive by Honolulu Harbor and I see all those uh, fishing sure. boats just tied up, uh, I, I didn't realize that uh, a trip, uh, a fishing trip, can cost up to forty-five thousand dollars. yeah, out? it's
4: it's a lot of money to to take a boat out and pay a crew. You know. Nick did talk to um, Rick Gaffney, a fisherman over, I think he's on the Big Island, and has been involved with Westpac and and other organizations involving uh, the fishing industry. Uh, And he says some some, uh, boat owners are taking uh, things into their own hands. They're selling fish through drive throughs uh, You're seeing this with other people as well. Uh, they're selling right out of their boat, their small boats. And of course, this is a different than the long, the long line industry, but it is still part of the overall industry. Meanwhile, the Department of Land and Natural Resources is trying to work out how to take care of that $4.3 million I mentioned earlier. And it's taken a while. It may take a month or so to start divvying up that money. DLNR is trying to find some sort of plan, how to spend that. They're trying to get guidance from NOAA. Uh, but DLNR also acknowledges that that money is really only a fraction uh, to help cover the losses that the industry is facing.
0: And I believe that criticism of we need guidance, we need guidance, kind of uh, uh, you know, runs the gamut you know, with these different pools of money about how they can be spent and how soon they can be rolled out.
4: Yeah, and I mentioned Nick. You know, being our D.C. bureau guy, he did talk to Ed Case, the representative, and and he is in this latest. I guess it's a three million dollar, three billion dollar, uh, bailout from the House. There is much more money for the fishing industry. How well the Senate will take that up, the GOP-controlled Senate remains to be seen.
0: Right. Yeah. Kind of a sad situation there. All right. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair. You can read Nick Ruby's story online at civilbeat.org. Department of Human Services, MedQuest Division, is making some big changes, and it's causing some big worries. Medicaid provides low-income adults and children access to medical coverage. The state went out to bid trimming the five providers, Aloha Care, HMSA, Kaiser Permanente, Ohana Health Plan, and United Healthcare Community Plan, down to just a couple of statewide. DHS awarded the statewide contract to HMSA and United. Aloha Care, Kaiser and Ohana are only to administer their Medicaid health plan here on Oahu. DHS says the one thing we heard again and again was that having a a lot of health plans was confusing to our beneficiaries and burdensome to doctors and other providers. While neighbor island Medicaid enrollees would still have health care coverage, some are worried the switch could cause confusion and other unintended consequences. And with more people expected to enroll in Medicaid because of rising unemployment from the coronavirus pandemic, some are very worried. DHS planned on implementing the new contract on July 1st, but due to the current health crisis, it's been delayed until further notice. The Hawaii County Council passed a resolution asking for more time. Some of their concerns included lack of public input and transparency during the RFP process. Richard Taff is the CEO of West Hawaii Community Health Center and is a board vice president at Aloha Care. He spoke with the conversations, Jason Ubai, about those concerns.
6: So what does that mean? What that means is that for us here in West Hawaii, over about 40 percent of our patients who were in one of the two plans that that did not get the contract have to sign up with a different plan. There's paperwork involved. There's um, different networks that each of these plans have, network of providers that these plans have. There's prior authorizations, different requirements, different formularies that all these plans have. So they may have to change medications, they may not be uh, have access to their specialist providers that they've historically used because those specialists may not be in the network of uh, these the plans that are supposedly going to uh, serve the neighbor islands so it's very disruptive to the patients so that's why I say it doesn't seem to meet the patient's need plus it reduces choice I think that that's a basic factor I mean we should have choice by making this decision two of those plans are only on Oahu and the other two are now going to be statewide the impact of that will be statewide there's about there'll be 40,000 Patients, Medicaid patients, who, who will have to find or be assigned new health plans. Those health plans, the impact of that is that the health plans do not necessarily have the same network of providers. So, for instance, if you're with Aloha Care now, they have a network of providers. One of the other, and if you're on the neighbor island and you're no longer with Aloha Care, you'll be assigned to one of the other health plans, HMSA or United Health. Their provider network may not be the same as Aloha care. So the impact of that will be that the the patient, even though they may have a have insurance still, they're gonna have to find a new provider, particularly specialists. Now we're talking about patients who are low income, have many chronic diseases, aged, blind, disabled, these are folks that, if you disrupt their care, they'll delay their care, resulting in significant illness and additional health care costs. It it just disrupts all of their care. If I can give you a story from our dentist, now we're not, Medicaid doesn't cover adult dental, but this is an example of... Just last week, because of COVID, we had to shut down dental services. We had a patient come in who had delayed his care, had an emergency, we, are, we do see him for emergencies, and the swelling and the infection was so bad, we had to send him to a specialist to drain the fluid and the infection out of his throat. I am not a dentist, I don't know all the technical terms, but bottom line is if it hadn't happened, if he hadn't come in, he could have, he would have been in the emergency room. He would have been in the hospital and he could have died. This is one example of when somebody, when you delay care for people, the consequences can be dire. And that's what's gonna end up happening by having people change their health plans and ultimately their health providers. Another example, every one of these health plans have different formularies. is the medications that they'll pay for. So somebody who's on chronic conditions and is on a particular medication because they're in a particular health plan, you all of a sudden you change it, then they have to change their medications in order to manage their chronic diseases. That requires additional visits, that requires adjustments, it requires the patient to redo their life in many ways going back to the decision that dhh to only limit it to two on the neighbor islands is going to be very disruptive to patients and from my perspective as the head of a large community health center in west Hawaii, it's going to impact us administratively and it's not going to reduce our administrative tasks
5: Maybe we could talk about the COVID nineteen crisis and the expected surge, I suppose, of new Medicaid subscribers. How how does that play into this? I, I it seems like it will be just uh, exacerbate an already existing issue.
6: Yes, it will, absolutely. Right now, I'm hearing that I've heard two different numbers. You know, two thousand new Medicaid patients a week. When we have high unemployment, we always see Medicaid go up. We know that our unemployment. I'm I'm hearing it's 20 25% of the population. For West Hawaii, uh, we're a, a tourism, and so the hotels and restaurants, all those people are laid off, and um, that's thousands and thousands of people. So, statewide, we multiply that out. If we're sitting 20 25% of the un- people are unemployed, they get their health insurance through their employer, they're no longer employed they don't have health insurance, they don't have an income, they very well could qualify for Medicaid. So our expectation is we're going to see a huge increase in enrollment of Medicaid patients. If there's not choice for those patients, or if there's a reduction in the number of providers available, because some providers aren't part of a particular network, we're not going to have the capacity to take care of those patients, that increase in patient, Medicaid patients. Um, and I will say this, that the, some of the health plans, when they put in their RFP, they identify their network. But many of those providers in that network do not take Medicaid because Medicaid, pays, Medicaid reimbursements are low. Uh, and some providers just choose not to take Medicaid, even though they'll be listed in the network because that network probably also has, that's a commercial, they take commercial patients. When you have fewer providers providing care to Medicaid, that creates access issues, that reduces um, a patient's ability to get in to see a provider. It delays their care. So not only are we dealing with a situation of, limited choice in terms of plans and options for patients to get into, but you have, that also impacts the access to care because the network of those health plans, the network of providers of those health plans is such that they may not have sufficient capacity to see the influx of new patients. And I think the other piece around it is, is specialty. I have talked to specialists here in this community, and Kailua Kona, who've said, "Yeah, we're on the the network, but we don't take that particular insurance because they are terrible payers. They delay payment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we don't participate. We're listed, but we don't participate. That's a specialist. So if here in the neighbor islands, 80% of our patients on the Big Island have to go to Oahu." because of limited specialty care. So if we're limiting specialists even more, we're gonna have to see more patients traveling. Our goal here in West Hawaii has been to bring more specialists in so that patients can see their specialists here. And so we do do have some specialists who come fly in and see patients for their cardiologist who flies in, sees uh, his patients, and they see it. he comes in on a Saturday uh, twice a month, sees patients and his follow-ups, and then goes back. We have limited care, and that's one of the things that is so frustrating about this, is that neighbor islands have limited access to care, and you're limiting it even more by limiting or restricting the health plans that will cover patients here.
0: That was Richard Taft, CEO of West Hawaii Community Health Center and a board member at Aloha Care. We reached out to DHS, and in a statement, Judy Moore-Peterson, MedQuest Division Administrator for uh, DHS, said it's focused on making sure people can sign up for coverage during this public health emergency and beyond, and has delayed implementing the new plan. The division also says that on Hawaii Island, it believes there is near complete overlap of provider networks. (music)
5: for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakalā Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalāRanch.com.
2: Hello, Waimi and Caps, host of The Early Muse. Every Saturday at 6 p.m. I explore the development and richness of Western music, both sacred and secular, from early medieval chant to song and dance through Renaissance polyphony to the first 100 years of the new baroque opera, oratorio and orchestral music up to the year 1700. Join me on HPR2, your home for classical music, or stream the early muse on demand anytime on our website.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at inkinen.com.
0: As we approach summertime, we reflect on another time period of isolation. Last June marked the 45th anniversary of the end of isolation in the Kalapapa settlement for leprosy or Hansen's disease patients. The residents who had endured permanent quarantine because of their contagious disease moved into the remote settlement and most died there. We reached out to local historian and author John Clark to talk about the parallels with our seclusion due to COVID-19. We also talked to him about his research uh, on his book, place names of Kalapapa.
7: They were physically removed from all of their homes. They were, you know, sent to Honolulu where they were processed and then they were sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. And they just lived there for the rest of their lives. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them never saw their families again. And if they had children there, the children were taken away from them when they were infants and given to family or friends or or to an orphanage as the case was.
0: Yeah, for someone else to raise. Exactly. I think there was a a letter that someone wrote. Uh, it was a lament for their son, where she talks about the uh, biblical cord is cut. Yes. And just the 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 heartache of that separation.
7: Exactly. The babies were taken away from their parents um, almost as soon as they were born.
0: There's also another point in the book where I believe they had passed a law saying that if your spouse came down with leprosy, with Hansen's disease, that you could file for a divorce.
7: Oh, yeah. I guess that happened a little later later. You know, in the history of Kalapapa, but that was true, too, because it was being sent there was just like being, you know, it was like the person died. I mean, the the lack of contact was absolute, so I guess the law just regard, regarded it as, you know, the person was no, no longer accessible to the uh, to the spouse.
0: But there were uh, were spouses who said no for better for worse in sickness and in ha- health, and they went down to Kalaupapa to spend the rest of their lives with their with their loved one.
7: You're right. They were called kokua. You know, kokua in Hawaiian means help. So the kokua were were helpers, and most of them were just what you described. They were usually spouses or or, or family members, but they actually had to apply to the Board of Health and get permission to be a Kokua. And if they did get permission, they were allowed to go there and, and live with the patient.
0: So talk about this book, that you your most recent book, because you did something a little different, right? You use letters from the residents of Kalapapa that were sent into the newspapers. So they were Hawaiian-language newspapers.
7: Yes well i named the I named the book Kalapapa Place Names, and place names um and their mo'olelo, the stories behind the names have always been of interest to me. So what I did is I, I just made a, um, a master list of every place name I could find on the pa- Kalapapa Peninsula, and I started looking for those names. I started searching for them in the Hawaiian language newspapers. They're online and they're searchable. So anyway, what happened was as, as I was searching for articles about and stories about these place names, then all of these letters and articles and all of this stuff that from the patients themselves started coming up on my searches and the amount of information that I gathered, especially, you know, Directly from the patients themselves, writing back to the the editors in Honolulu was just phenomenal.
0: And your book is dedicated to the memory of your great great grandmother.
7: Yes, that, you know, Catherine. That's it's quite an interesting story. I had I had done all of this research and gotten all of the articles translated. I wrote the book. I, I submitted my manuscript to the UH Press and. The book was already moving. It was already moving through the production pipeline. And out of the clear blue, I got a call from a relative uh, here, in, here on Oahu. And she had a, she had a question about family genealogy. So anyway, we talked story for a little while. And then she asked me, she said, well, what are you working on right now? And I said, oh, a book on Kalapapa. And she says do you know that you had a relative that was a patient that was sent to call papa and i said no i had absolutely no idea so anyway she told me the story and it turned out to be my great-great-grandmother and so i dedicated the book to her
0: And that's emily
7: yes emily
0: and gosh so were you able to try and do a deep dive on her story and what her experience was
7: <laughs> it was well even more interesting than the story i just told you is that when my, my relative here on Oahu told me her name, Emily, I recognized it immediately because I had seen it in one of the articles that was in the book. And one of the the article that had her name in it was an article that listed patients who had died in the year 1885. So using that and using her name, I tried to track down information about her, but there wasn't much. There wasn't much at all. When I was researching my, my beaches of Maui County Beach Book back in the, the late 1980s, I, I actually went down to Kalapapa because they have beaches down there. And I, um, I, I walked up and down the trail on uh, several different occasions and spent the night down there and talked with the superintendent. I you know talked to the patients, and I, I did my thing uh, checking out all the beaches on the peninsula. So the beaches are what took me there initially, but once I got there, of course, it was just total immersion on everything that had happened there from, you know, 1860, 1866
0: on. Well, I know the State Archives is trying to digitize all the records uh, from all the residents there. So they will be available to relatives so that if you wanted to do research that you would be able to do that.
7: Oh, well, that's that's really good information. Thank you for letting me know. I didn't realize that. You know, what I tried to do was not to repeat what everybody else had already done and, you know, the research that had gone on before me. But I focused on the Hawaiian language newspapers as a, a rather unique resource. And I think I got a lot of uh, information to add to the overall history of Kalapapa.
0: Now, I know they're working on a memorial of the 8,000 residents who yes. live down there. Do you think you're going to try and make it down there when when they dedicate that, knowing that you have a connection there?
7: Oh, of course. Yeah, the, the memorial is in, in a field right across from Father Damien's church over in Kalawao, um, his St. Filomeno church just on the Malka side of it, there's a nice big open field there, and, and that's the site for the memorial, it's which, which right now they're fundraising for. But anyway, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to get down there if, um, if they can accommodate everybody that wants to go.
0: Have you been there to try and find your great-great-grandmother's tombstone? I don't know if she's buried there.
7: She is buried there, but she's in an unmarked grave. So as far as I know, the, the site of her burial is is not recorded anywhere i haven't been able to track it down through any of the resources that are available right now there are other patients too that that are in unmarked graves but i believe the memorial is gonna as long as they can document that someone was there and someone died there their name will still be included on the memorial whether whether they found a gravestone for them or not. One thing that might, might you might be interested to know is that in the history of, of leprosy in the Hawaiian Islands, we all think that everybody was sent to Kalaupapa beginning in 1866, and that's the only place that there were settlements. But from the very beginning, the patients and the families lobbied for local segregation, and they wanted to establish... Leprosy settlements on the main islands, um, and not just at at Kalaupapa and Molokai. So anyway, there were there were a lot of recommendations in the legislature, and there, were, there were even uh, field trips over to Kauai, to uh, Kalalau Valley to see if that would work as an alternate site for local segregation. But in the end, in the end, none of the alternate sites were approved, and everybody just. Uh, got sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. You know, you know. one of the things that really came through to me is that the majority of the people, the majority of the patients realized that they were sent there for the rest of their lives. And they weren't negative about it. I mean, there, there were a lot of things that they didn't like. They wished they could change it. They wished they could have had local segregation. As opposed to just this one place, one remote area that that nobody else could get to, but they made the best of it. There, they they tried to be positive, and I think that comes through loud and clear when you when you read the articles and you read what they've written. That. They, they, just, they just tried to live their lives as, as best they could and made the best out of a, a not so good situation. And, you know, the, the Hawaiian-language newspapers, they started off in 1834, even well before the settlement was established over there. And the Hawaiian-language newspapers kept the patients, the, the residents at Kalapapa, informed of exactly what was happening in the, in, on the other Hawaiian islands you know, outside of the Kalapapa Peninsula. So all of the holidays, you know, whether it was the 4th of July or New Year's, or even in the 1900s, like May Day, King Kamehameha Day, all of those holiday celebrations, they were, they were celebrating them there with parades and sporting events and, and all kinds of stuff, just like the rest of the folks in Hawaii were. So yeah, they were, they were upbeat, they were positive. They just tried to make the best of where they were.
0: And author John Clark talking about his most recent book, Kalapapa Place Names, and the parallels with our COVID-19 isolation. Well, it's time for us to go now. Tomorrow we continue to explore the stories of Kalopapa as we reflect on isolation. We look at efforts of master gardeners to keep our links to our history alive. We would like to hear from you. What are your concerns as state lawmakers work on the state budget to avoid pay pay cuts and layoffs. Call our talkback line 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at org. We are on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.